0: This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. The topic we're going to discuss is that of smoke inhalation. And it's important to recognize that smoke inhalation is one of the most common cause of fire-related deaths. Structure of fires contain about 400 toxic compounds. When you break down What is smoke? Smoke is basically products of incomplete combustion. And it basically results in a particulate matter or, for lack of a better descriptor, dust. And that dust then is inhaled and it has toxic effects on the airways and the lung parenchyma. Some common materials that are toxic that are found in smoke typically include things such as carbon monoxide, polyvinyl chloride, carbon dioxide, ammonia, as well as cyanide. Now, the isolated smoke injury, um, basically somebody who is involved in a structure of fire, inhales smoke, but doesn't have associated uh, burn injuries, has a mortality rate of approximately 10%. And that's referenced by Thompson and colleagues in the Journal of Trauma, 1986, volume 26, pages 163 to 165. Now, when you combine a smoke inhalation injury with a thermal burn, that will actually increase the mortality rate Um, to about 20% for the smoke inhalation. Now, that has to be compounded with what is the mortality of the other associated trauma, be it a 50% burn or multiple fractures. Um, So smoke inhalation is clearly problematic in in taking care of patients with... uh, Uh, burn-related injuries. Now, there are several elements of a smoke-related injury. There is the asphyxiation, there is the actual thermal injury of inhaling heated gases, and then there's what we call delayed toxic lung injury. Let's take what some people would consider perhaps the most obvious, and that is the thermal injury of inhaling hot gases. Now, direct thermal injury to the mucosa of the tracheobronchial tree is actually pretty rare. It's usually limited to the upper airwave above the vocal cords. Now, we are pretty adaptive that when we inhaled superheated gases uh, or hot gases, what happens is the vocal cords will reflexively adduct or come together, protecting the lower tracheal bronchial tree from the heated gases. Now, steam is a better conductor of heat than dry air, and steam can be cause severe injury to the lung. Now, what is this? You may remember from uh, high school chemistry, but there is basically heat carrying capacity. Um, and um, what is the heat carrying capacity to steam versus dry air? Uh, steam is several hundred times a better carrier of heat. So when you inhale steam, what you're able to do is you're able to transfer that energy, the thermal energy uh, from steam much more readily than you can by inhaling dry air. Um, And this is further described in an article by Zikra and colleagues in the Annals of Surgery back in 1975. So none of this is actually very new. Now, when you inhale uh, smoke, many people will get carbonaceous debris or soot. This, of it by itself, is not toxic. We don't necessarily know what the carbonaceous debris is. We don't know what it potentially is. But what it does is it acts as a marker that the patient has been exposed to a significant amount of smoke and that they are at risk ...for developing the delayed complications... Uh, associated with a smoke inhalation. Now, so indicated a significant amount of smoke as well as the inhalation of toxic fumes, like we mentioned, asphyxiation can occur in patients who have been in structured fires and associated with smoke, from the, typically from carbon monoxide as well as cyanide. Now, delayed toxic mediated lung injury may not occur for 24 to 48 hours after the initial smoke exposure. Now, this is what we typically will see in an intensive care units. Uh, recently, uh, here at Vanderbilt, we've had several patients um, who have gone through this initial 24 to 48 period where you're resuscitating them. And we actually call this the honeymoon period. So for example, a patient comes in, they have an 80% burn. They have these horrific injuries. You do escherotomies, you put lines in, you start your parkland resuscitation. The patient may be hypovolemic, they may be oliguric, but this is actually the honeymoon period. This is when things are actually pretty good because typically after about 48 hours, He begin to experience severe pulmonary dysfunction the patient, becomes very difficult to mechanically ventilate, may be associated with severe hypoxia. And you have to know that this period of uh, worst times are coming after that initial 24 to 48-hour honeymoon period. Now, um, in management of the airway, about 20 to 33% of patients um, who have smoke inhalation will have some degree of airway obstruction airway control. um, It is better to uh, place an endotracheal tube under uh, elective or controlled circumstances than wait for a patient to get a critical airway narrowing and having to do emergency airway procedures or worse yet, not be able to get the airway. Now, when somebody has uh, airway edema, they'll typically uh, take on a posture that I'll typically refer as tripodting. If you've ever seen a patient who has uh, epiglottitis, that's typically what the patient will look like. Uh, the person who's best able to manage a patient's airway is most commonly the patient. And so if they have swelling of the upper airway, the epiglottis, they'll typically kind of lean forward, drooling, and be actively controlling their own airway. If you've ever seen anesthesia, uh, when it comes to management of difficult airways, they will do nothing quickly. They will not speak fast. They will not move fast. In a lot of those circumstances, the innovations will be done as an awake innovation. Next comes a discussion regarding the asphyxiants. And back in 2007, we did a podcast uh, specifically on carbon oxide and cyanide. We'll go over that a little bit here. And typically, patients who have an asphyxiation will have some altered or decreased level of consciousness. Typically, the asphyxiants most commonly associated with structure fires include things such as carbon oxide and hydrogen cyanide oxygen is consumed um, um, as well as in in a fire. And so what can happen is if you're in a room and there's a fire, what will happen is the fire will consume the oxygen and that will lower the ambient fractional inspiratory oxygen, the FiO2. So in the room that I'm talking now, the amount of oxygen in this room is 21%. If the room were to catch on fire, the oxygen would consume that lowering the FiO2. So you have really multiple uh, kind of um, mechanisms of asphyxiation going on. You have the asphyxiation, the fact that the fire is consuming the oxygen, so you can't consume it, and then you have this, this, toxic, this intoxication with carbon monoxide and cyanide, which will further result in an asphyxiation. So let's dive a little bit more into what are these asphyxiations. Well, carbon monoxide is a colorless, odorless gas. It binds hemoglobin over 200 times more strongly than oxygen. It is the leading cause of poisoning deaths in the United States. Typically, patients who have carbon monoxide toxicity will have symptoms such as headaches, nausea, and dizziness. Uh, the more critical situations that have weakness, seizures, coma, and hypotension. So basically what happens is you've got a certain amount of hemoglobin in your body. The carbon monoxide comes in, and it binds it, so oxygen cannot um, bind it. It's basically the example that I'll sometimes use is uh, somebody gets on a bus, and on a bus there's a lot of big... Burly bullies that won't give up their seat. Well, oxygen can't get on the bus, they can't go anywhere because the carbon dioxide is in those seats and it's not giving them up. Now, how do we assess um, carbon dioxide? Uh, The standard false oximeter cannot make the diagnosis of carbon monoxide. The standard oximeter that's in most uh, helicopters, ambulances, emergency departments, ICUs, is looking at oxygenated hemoglobin or deoxygenated hemoglobin. Now, a patient may have a normal SpO2. That's the normal... um, may have a normal pulse oximeter, but may be carbon monoxide toxic. So to make the diagnosis, you actually need a co-oximeter. Now, there are many devices now um, that are available. Uh, you can get in a pre-hospital setting to be used in a fire Uh, for a fire department, an ambulance, or a helicopter. The reason why these are important, particularly in a pre-hospital setting, is basically managing fatigue with firefighters. Uh, A firefighter comes out of fighting a fire. Uh, He's been in a room that's over a 1,000 degrees in temperature. He's carrying heavy equipment. And he's tired and fatigued. One of the things you need to know is, is he tired and fatigued like anybody else would be put under those uh, extraordinary circumstances? Or is he uh, uh, suffering from early carbon monoxide toxicity? And so you could put the probe on much like you would as a regular pulse oximeter and get a percentage of carbon monoxide. That's also very helpful. Um, And it should be used, in my opinion, also on patients who are being pulled from fires. If you pull somebody from a fire and they have an altered level of consciousness, you want to know if their carbon monoxide level is 25 or 30%. Now, normal carbon monoxide level is typically less than 5%. But there are patients who normally can be walking around with carbon monoxide levels between 5 and 10%. And those certain populations may be people such as smokers, people who are uh, uh, truck drivers, or, or in and around diesel fuels, uh, diesel fumes or, or automobile fumes on a regular and chronic basis. Now, the half-life of carbon monoxide is about 250 minutes. Um, and what that means is that it in about four hours it takes to take somebody's carbon monoxide level down by half, if they're breathing room air. That's 21% oxygen. Now, if we put somebody on five times the normal amount of oxygen, which is 100% oxygen, you can knock down that half-life of carbon monoxide down to sixty minutes. Now, carbon monoxide toxicity is considered serious when that level is greater than twenty percent. Now, there's no dose response curve. Now, these these half lives are relevant because imagine, for instance, you are getting a patient who um, you're at a regional center or a trauma center or a burn center, and somebody's pulled from a fire three hours ago, and uh, they're put on they're intubated or put on a hundred percent non-rebreather, and they've been on that for uh, three hours. That's three half-lives. So when you get the patient and you get the carbon monoxide level and they say, oh, well, you know, the carbon monoxide level is five. They're fine. They don't have carbon monoxide toxicity. Not at that point in time, but what was it three hours ago at the fire ground? That's what you want to know. And go back three hours, well, that's three half-lives. So five goes to um, one hour ago, it was ten. Uh, Two hours ago, it was 20, and when it was pulled from the fire, it was approximately 40%. That's a very critical carbon monoxide level. Now, the carbon monox- carboxyhemoglobin level does not correlate with the severity of the poison. So basically, uh, 20 is more than 40, but the actual amount of toxicity, the biological effect it may have to the individual, should not be correlated that 40 is always worse than 20. Somebody could have a level of 20 and have profound neurological sequela from their carbon monoxide toxicity. So a victim can get a CO level of greater than 20% in less than five minutes when exposed uh, to elevated levels of CO. It doesn't take a tremendous uh, period of exposure to get reasonably uh, critically toxic from this. Now patients who have smoke inhalation can have delayed neurological complaints um, what I would do is I'd put you in context of something like uh, the post-concussive syndrome that we are more and more familiar with 10-15 years ago most people who had a concussion with brief loss of consciousness there was no discussion at all is what is the long term sequela of this brief loss of consciousness what is the impact on their ability to do complex cognitive functions, to work, to go to school, or perhaps even in behavioral or mood uh, disorders. Uh, And we are well aware now that people can suffer a post-concussive syndrome. Take that same kind of template or that mentality that you use for that and apply it to patients who are survivors of a smoke inhalation or carbon monoxide toxicity, they can have delayed neurological complaints. They may complain of things like dizziness, confusion, depression, or memory loss. They may have more severe manifestations such as amnesia, mood disorders, changes in speech, and problems with walking. And you, um, you, You may not detect those if you're not looking for those, so you should certainly survey those and get the patients to appropriate professionals if they need something like cognitive rehab. We will typically take our patients who have uh, been suspected of carbon monoxide toxicity or smoke inhalation and get them a cognitive evaluation and cognitive therapy if that's um, uh, deemed, if it's uh, warranted. Now, the treatment for carbon monoxide toxicity is 100% oxygen. Keep the patient on 100% oxygen until the CO levels are less than 10%. Now, there is some controversy regarding hyperbaric oxygen. This is a little bit of a different injury than somebody who is maybe pulled from their house. Uh, there's no structure of fire, and they have an isolated um, uh, carbon monoxide toxicity when you put someone in hyperbaric chamber, say at two atmospheres, the half-life of the carbon monoxide is reduced to 27 minutes, uh, is generally considered for patients who have a pure carbon monoxide toxicity, uh, patients who would have a depressed level of consciousness, neurological findings, current, uh, cardiac instability, um, uh, CO uh, carboxyhemoglobin levels that are greater than 25 to 40% or symptomatic after about four to six hours with pneumobaric oxygen. Those are the kind of patients that you would ordinarily think of carbon monoxide toxicity for a pure CO poisoning. However, it is more complicated than that in a patient who's pulled from a structure of fire. There's multiple things going on. First of all, with a smoke inhalation injury, they can have significant parenchymal problems with their lungs. They can have a sloughing of the tracheal mucosa, and they have airway edema. They can have air trapping. And that can be problematic when somebody is put in a hyperbaric chamber. That is different than somebody who has a pure carbon monoxide toxicity for example, if we change the scenario and imagine that we have a patient who we are treating who has a pneumothorax and the patient is going to be transported by helicopter to your local trauma center and you put the patient in the helicopter without decompressing the pneumothorax, everybody who takes care of patients in that scenario would know that that is the wrong thing to do. Why? You'll remember from chemistry in high school that as the volume of a gas will change with the atmospheric pressure. So if I take... Um, a pneumothorax that is 400 cc's and I take somebody up to altitude where there's less barometric pressure, the size of the pneumothorax will predictably increase. Now the converse is true too, that we have a lot of air trapping in the lung and if the patient were to develop trapping at say two or three atmospheres during hyperbaric oxygen and then the patient is brought to sea level, what would happen? Those areas of air trapping will increase uh, with decompression back to uh, normal baric pressure. Other things that happen, is that taking a patient with a 20 or 30, 40, 50, or whatever percentage burn and putting them into a hyperbaric chamber has significant logistical issues. Uh, these patients are not easy to gain access to. Uh, there may be difficulties in uh, getting resuscitative equipment or even uh, critical care and nursing to the patient. So it's not as easy as it may initially appear when you see it initially in writing. Um, now, uh, cyanide is the next uh, asphyxiate that we want to talk about. Uh, it pr- it's produced from burning of synthetic fibers, polymers, paper, polyurethane, wools, silk. It has a potential for cyanide poisoning. And basically what it does is it poisons the electron transport chain. Now, tissues can die as an asphyxiation in the presence of adequate amount of oxygen. Um, I think of um, the rhyme of the ancient mariner by Walt Whitman, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Um, you can have plenty of oxygen in the patient. They can have a normal oxygen saturation. Uh, But what happens is you poison the electron transport chain and the cells can't use the oxygen that's there. You remember from high school biology, how do cells use energy? You take glucose molecule, it goes through something called glycolysis, and then it goes through the Krebs cycle, and then eventually electron transport chain. All those cycles, those three metabolic pathways, are all interrelated. So if you poison the electron transport chain, uh, cyanide would, for instance, poison the cytochrome AA3. You, you basically throw a wrench in that system and it can't run. What does that do to the Krebs cycle? It shuts it down. So the only thing you're ne- necessarily left with is uh, glycolysis. And what that does is taking glucose to uh, pyruvate. It can't get into the Krebs cycle so then it goes through the enzyme pyruvate dehydrogenase and eventually forms lactate uh, which then goes to the liver and form, uh, is, is metabolized by the Cori cycle. Now, um, the difficult problem with uh, cyanide poisoning is rapid confirmatory testing is lacking. It's not like you can walk in an emergency room and rapidly get a cyanide test. Very few centers... Uh, are able to perform that test and those centers that do, there's typically a significant delay in in perhaps hours in getting the patient. Now you would not wait hours prior to establishing an airway in a patient. You've been trained over and over and over again that I've got about four minutes to get that patient oxygenating before I result in some central nervous system damage or brain damage. But in this circumstance, you have an airway in place. You may have a pulse oximeter reading 100%, but the tissues can't use the oxygen. Uh, So you have to be, uh, you have to work as rapidly with this uh, as you would perhaps somebody who doesn't necessarily have an airway. Now, um... Uh, Patients who have cyanide poisoning typically will also have carbon monoxide toxicity. So if you have someone who is carbon monoxide toxic uh, but you can't get a cyanide level, it's probably safe to at least assume for the sake of treatment that the patient also has cyanide poisoning. The other thing is is that we mentioned about when we went through those metabolic pathways. Uh, we said the electron transport chain doesn't work. What results is basically a metabolic acidosis with an elevated lactate or a lactic acidosis. Um, so if you get lactic acidosis in your patient, you might be suspected that maybe this patient is cyanide toxic. The other thing is we've mentioned that the oxygen that goes out to the periphery can't be utilized because the um metabolic pathways are, are poisoned. So what happens is oxygenated blood goes out to the periphery and it comes back reasonably highly oxygenated. So what you could do is you get a mixed venous saturation and you'll see an elevated SVO2 uh, uh, as well. So perhaps lactic acidosis, elevated SVO2, and elevated carbon monoxide would make one highly suspicious that you're treating somebody with cyanide toxicity. There are really two antidote kits out. One is called the Lily Kit. Uh, it was initially um, developed in 1934, and the idea behind this kit is that you intentionally induce a toxicity called methemoglobinemia. Um, our normal methemoglobin level is about 1% to 2%, and by inducing the methemoglobinemia, the cyanide preferentially binds with the methemoglobin, and it basically does not overwhelm metabolic pathways, and it allows your body, uh, your, your liver basically, to metabolize the cyanide in a much more controlled fashion. Uh, The other kit is uh, using um, uh, um, a molecule called hydroxycobolamine. The trade name for this is cyanokit. It's basically a a pumped-up vitamin B shot, and it directly binds to cyanide or chelates it. It's approved in many states in the United States for pre-hospital use. Why is that? Again, think about it. If you have a firefighter or a fire victim and they have potential cyanide toxicity and their cells are being deprived from using oxygen, it's not something that you could perhaps uh, transport the patient uh, and have hope and anticipate a good outcome. It's well-tolerated. The uh, hydroxycobolamine has very few side effects. It does result in a very bright discoloration of the skin and urine, which can mess up uh, some of your typical laboratory tests. So if you have the option, get your uh, labs simultaneously, or certainly hopefully while you're starting the cyano kit. Um, and it may cause, uh, the drug itself may cause some hypertension, some bradycardia, as well as some allergic reactions. Now, the meat of this discussion is really this idea of delayed toxic mediated lung injury. And what happens is the carbonaceous debris, this is the third phase, after you've done the honeymoon period, you've you've treated the asphyxiation early, you don't have any thermal injuries, you've done your resuscitation, and then bang at 48 hours. Everything starts to come undone. And it's typically this delayed toxic mediated lung injury. Carbonaceous debris is not directly responsible for the toxic mediated lung injury, but it is a significant marker. It typically happens after a 48 hour honeymoon. The epithelial cells will die and slough and they become cellular debris. Now, how you typically deal with cellular debris inside your tracheal bronchial tree is that you have these ciliated cells that line um, your airways. And on those uh, ciliated cells, is a blanket of mucus, and this acts very much like flypaper. And what it does is, dust and particles as you inhale them will settle out on that mucociliary escalator. The cilia then work in a very organized fashion and move that mucus uh, blanket in a aboral or towards the mouth direction. Where at what point you, <clears throat> you might clear your throat, and then you swallow that, and then it is eliminated through your GI tract. When the particulate matter of smoke settles in on the tracheal on this mucosa, what it does is it basically poisons and kills those cells over a 48-hour period. After that 48-hour period, the cells slough. So you have increased cellular debris and a decreased mechanism to handle that debris. And this is what it then develops what we call retrograde or in the wrong direction, <laughs> bronchorrhea. You know what diarrhea is and so there's bronchuria. Now, the assessment of smoke inhalation, you want to uh, be concerned that somebody has smoke inhalation if they have facial burns, singed nasal hairs, or a history of being in a closed space. Patients may have soot or carbonaceous sputum are not necessarily reliable um, predictors of smoke inhalation as previously thought. Not everybody who has soot on their face has an inhalation injury. Now, they may have um, a thermal injury to their upper airway and may have some issues with edema. Now, things like such as hypoxia, rails, and wheezes, these are rarely present on a mission, so don't roll a patient out just because they have clear uh, lung sounds. Now, if they do have hypoxia, rails, or bronchi, it's an indication that the patient does have a pretty significant smoke inhalation. So the presence of those physical findings can roll in a smoke inhalation, but it can't roll it out. The chest x-ray is often normal. When it is abnormal, it's an indication that you have a severe injury. About 66% of uh, patients will develop uh, changes on chest x-ray within the first 5 to 10 days. So it may occur, but it not, may not always occur when you're first assessing the patient in the emergency department. And you also need the chest x-ray to really establish a baseline. You need the film, but you're not going to make any diagnostic decisions based on it. Bronchoscopy. uh, When you do bronchoscopy, you're looking for soot, edema, ulceration, and necrosis. Now, when you do a bronchoscopy, uh, people will typically advance the scope past the endotracheal tube. And I would tell you to go slowly through the endotracheal tube. Look through the endotracheal tube because if they're getting soot, the soot, we want to know about what's happening basically below the vocal cords. And typically, the endotracheal tubes advanced several centimeters past the vocal cords before you get out into the distal trachea. So as you're passing down through that in the tracheal tube, take a chance and or take a, an opportunity and just slow down and glance through that plastic and see if you see any carbonaceous debris. Uh, you may see just uh, some black peppering uh, or soot of the airway. Um, and what you really have a difficult time doing is does the amount of soot correlate with the magnitude of the inhalation injury, and the answer is no, it doesn't. You either have it or not. It's a positive or negative test. Now, when you look for edema, when you're looking at edema, normally the uh, trachea has uh, cartilaginous rings, and often you could see those are sharply demarcated. The normal color of uh, the trachea mucosa is kind of a beige color, like a a pair of uh, uh, khakis, for instance, but if you start seeing blunting of those cartilaginous rings, that may be an indication of an, an edema process. Sometimes you'll actually get uh, cobblestoning appearance uh, or ulcerations, and that is indication of a much, much more um, severe inhalation injury, and it's really a life threatening condition. Um, you will identify twice as many patients using bronchoscopy than which you would just uh, find based on physical signs or symptoms. Um, bronchoscopy is considered positive only if there are positive findings. Um, Absence of findings on bronchoscopy should not be used to determine that a patient does not have uh, suffered from an inhalation injury. So again, this is another circumstance where positive is positive, but negative is not negative. If you have positive findings on bronchoscopy, your patient has a smoke inhalation. If you have negative findings on smoke inhalation, it does not mean that your patient has not suffered from a smoke inhalation injury. A normal bronchoscopy does not indicate the absence of an inhalation injury. It's very important. Now, the management airway, again, edema is perhaps the most feared complication when caring for a burn patient. Some degree of airway obstruction occurs in about 20 to 33 percent of hospitalized victims with smoke inhalation. And the provider with the most experience in airway skills really should be responsible. For the management of that airway, bronchodilators. Uh, when you inhale smoke, again, we've uh, tried to articulate that it is a chemical tracheobronchitis, and that may cause some wheezing and bronchospasm. We like racemic epinephrine as an aerosolized therapy, um, and the reason why is that if somebody's having bronchospasms, well, why can't I use something like albuterol? You can't use albuterol; it's a nice beta agonist. But the nice thing about racemic epi is that we're typically dealing with a multifaceted injury, and one of those uh, one of those patterns of injury is edema of the airway. And since racemic epinephrine has a alpha component to it, it can cause vasoconstriction of the small blood vessels of the Uh, airway, the mucosa, and hopefully reduce some of the edema. So that's why we prefer racemic epinephrine. Other uh, uh, elements of the management include things such as N-acetylcysteine and heparin. And we uh, can use a nebulized N-acetylcysteine and heparin mix. There's been articles done by Desai and colleagues, and they've been printed in the Journal of Burn Burn Care and Rehab, and perhaps that needs to be a topic for a separate podcast. But those uh, uh, N-acetylcysteine, or mucomys, is commonly known as a mucolytic breaking down some of the uh, chemical bonds and mucus and making it more thin. And to some degree it does that, but that's not the intent of why we're using it under this indication. The reason why we're using MucaMist is that it's a great oxygen-free radical scavenger. And a lot of uh, this toxic mediated lung injury is felt to be uh, related to... um, the increase in uh, reactive oxygen species. Same thing with heparin. Heparin People will say, well, heparin's an anticoagulant. That's one of my pet peeves. Heparin is not an anticoagulant. Uh, antithrombin 3 is anticoagulant. And what heparin does is that augments the presence or augments the activity of antithrombin 3. Absent antithrombin 3, heparin isn't an anticoagulant, but heparin does have some pretty significant anti inflammatory. Uh, properties And it has been shown that the use of aerosolized N-acetylcysteine and heparin uh, will improve the management of patients with smoke inhalation. Lastly, we use a, uh, we and a lot of other burn centers use a rather unique modality of mechanical ventilation called VDR, which is volume diffusive respiration, also known as high frequency percussive ventilation. And the idea behind uh, high-frequency percussive ventilation is that it actually allows us to help with the clearance of the secretions. If you imagine the retrograde bronchorrhea, uh, the inability to clear secretions, these patients really have a lot in common with a patient who has, say, cystic fibrosis. And by using this unique mode of ventilation, we can oxygenate patients very well, but also creates an environment which allows for a significant pulmonary toilet and clearance of secretions. And uh, that's why this uh, rather unique mode of ventilation has been adopted by many burn centers, including our own. There you have a brief introduction and in the uh, management of smoke inhalation injuries. My name is Jeffrey Guy. You've been listening to the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. Uh, we do have other um, uh, podcasts which include uh, pharmacology for the pre hospital professional. We also have. The PHTLS podcast, which is focused on pre-hospital trauma care, um, both of those are free uh, on the iTunes Store. Uh, there are apps which have been developed by um, um, Wizard Media, and uh, they're responsible for making the maps. Apps. What it does is, um, you can actually download all of the applications or all of the podcasts on demand. Now, some of you will send me emails say it was a little bit slower, didn't download. Most of the podcasts are archived. Um, for the fact that it's just cheaper for us to do that, provide a free podcast. And so sometimes it does, the archival system for our syndication partner is a little bit slow or delayed. So if it doesn't work on a particular time, by all means, give it a, another shot when um, it seems to, to upload uh, to the front of the uh, server a little bit faster. You can also join us on uh, FaceTime under IC Rounds and uh, IC Rounds on Twitter. This is Jeff Guy. Thanks for listening. Have a day